Good evening, everybody. How are we? That, um, I like that sound tune, that sort of soundtrack. That's nice. It kind of makes you feel like you're um, walking along the beach with a straw hat and <laughs> gets you in a nice, relaxed sort of frame of mind before, you, before you're going to listen to some words. Um, so as you don't know me, I'm Ben. I'm not normally allowed out on a Sunday night, so you may not recognise me if you only come on Sunday evenings. I come on Sunday mornings normally with my wife and daughter, uh, but it's a real pleasure to be with you uh, this evening, trying to answer a pretty tricky question, right? Can we trust the Bible? I thought, to be fair on you, I would give you the answer right from the start, just to allay any fears if you think, oh my gosh, the church has lost its way, we're getting rid of the Bible. No, we're not. So the answer is yes, we can. But really what this evening is about is, okay, but, but when people come with their questions, saying, well, isn't this just a bunch of books written thousands of years ago that are totally irrelevant by a bunch of guys and, and a few women as well along the way who authored some of it, isn't this just irrelevant or aren't there inconsistencies? Or, you know, why have we got four Gospels and not one Gospel? Did they get the first one wrong and have to write three more? What's all that about? So all the sort of questions that maybe you have yourself or perhaps society at large has, and they throw your direction, what I hope we'll be able to do tonight is at least start to grapple with what some well-thought-through answers might be to this. It's good, I believe, to think our faith through, to think it through, and to grapple with some of these tough questions. So it's a good thing to be trying to answer some of this, I believe. In many churches, after the Bible is read, people often, when they're reading it, they will say something along the lines that this is the word of the Lord. And what would the response be? Thanks be to God. You're good Anglicans, obviously. This is good. And that really is my, my only hope and aim and prayer for us this evening is actually we will recognise afresh that this thing we call the Bible is the word of the Lord. And it is something to give thanks to God for in sharing it with our culture. Despite some of the challenges, despite some of the honest critique and the questions that you might throw at me this evening, that your friends and family and colleagues might throw at you during the working week, that actually, ultimately, we can still land and affirm that truth that this is the word of the Lord and say thanks be to God for it. So we're just going to jump into a particular bit of the Bible. I've put a few of these Bibles around for you, so you might want it on your phone, you might want it in front of you, or you might just want to listen to a bit of scripture, close your eyes, hear the words as it comes to you. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke chapter 24, verse 13, and in the Church Bibles, that's page 1061. So I'll just give you a moment to kind of flick through to that, or find it on your iPhone, or whatever you're using. So I'm just going to read a few verses from the Gospel according to Luke. So, on the road to Emmaus. So, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Now, in terms of the point of the story where we're at, so Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's in the tomb, and this is now three days later. So the things that these two people are talking about is all these events that's been happening that they didn't quite expect to happen in the way that it did. So that's what they're talking about. Jesus now appears, so sort of post-death appearance, resurrection appearance, if you like, 
and he's now going to have a conversation. So let's see what Jesus is going to say to them. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I love this next bit. What things, you almost <laughs> what things might they be? You can almost hear it, can't you? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This is the word of the Lord. Now, in trying to answer this question about trust, I need a volunteer from amongst you, please. Um, and I did, I, I did ask for Margaret's permission beforehand, so that's why she's so keen. So, um, thank you. Round of applause for Margaret. Not yet. You can't sit down. Not yet, I'm afraid. Before I um, ask you to sit down, Margaret, this is my last chance to embarrass this lady here. Because uh, my wife and I, uh, we're moving on to another church in, in a few weeks' time, because um, Anna's going to start our ordination training, which is very exciting, but also sad because we're going to be leaving all you lovely people and Margaret as well. And I'm going to embarrass this lady for one last time, because every day for the past seven days, this lady has been in this church, serving, worshipping, praising God, serving others. Every day for the past seven days. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And I know all of us would do that if we could, and... Life, stage of life doesn't always allow it, but isn't that amazing? I've got time. I know, but isn't it great that people want to be here every day of the week, serving and worshipping God? So thank you, Margaret, for that witness. Now, so we're talking about trust. So I'm going to, in a minute, ask Margaret to sit down on this chair that I've provided for her. So that before you do that, I need to ask you, Margaret, do you trust me? Are you sure? Yes. You sure? Yes. Even if you were going to sit down, looking straight ahead and not seeing the chair that I put behind you, you trust me not to move it? Or you trust that this chair is well built and it's going to... Yes. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. How many roast potatoes did you have at lunchtime? (laughs) Okay, good, 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 good. Okay. So, would you like to take a seat, please? 
So far, so good. <laughs> so Margaret trusts me, and she trusts the chair that is going to support her. It's going to do the job it was designed to do. In order for actually Margaret to take that step and to sit down, something she sat down on versions of thousands and millions of times, what else or who else did she need to trust? So she trusts the chair, but there's some other implicit trust going on as well. Anyone else sort of responsible in this scenario, would you say? The maker of the chair. Yeah, absolutely right. So the engineer who put the chair together, the authority, if you like, behind the chair that thought this would be a good and a trustworthy design for a chair that can hold people's weight whilst sitting through a three-hour sermon, for example. <laughs> so we've, we've got the authority behind the chair that we have to trust in order to sit on the chair itself. What else do we need to trust if we're going to sit down on the chair? Physics. Physics. Tell me more. <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> Just the, the way that physics works, that the laws of physics aren't going to suddenly give up. Yep. The metals are going to hold together. Right. Absolutely. So the actual composition of the chair itself. So is, is the wood and the metal actually sufficient for how it's been put together? So you've got the authority behind the chair, the engineer, if you like. You've actually got the composition and the materials the chair is made from. So how it's put together, what it's composed of, that Margaret is implicitly trusting as well. And the final area of trust was in me, who presented her with this chair. So actually there's three levels of trust going on here. And so it is, I'll let you sit down in a minute, Margaret, over there. Or well, you can stay for the whole, if you want to. Um, so there's three levels of trust. And, and that's how I think, actually, sort of our trust in the Bible works. Because if we see the Bible being like the chair which our beliefs rest on, so where we get all ideas about God and Jesus and everything else comes from the Bible, by and large, that we're resting our beliefs on this, right? So even the fact that we believe Jesus has risen from the dead, we find that written in here, that he died for our sins. We find it written in here. So this, if you like, is our chair. But in asking the question, do we trust this, there's actually three other questions we're really asking. Or the people who pose the question to you down the pub in the workplace, you don't believe that Bible stuff, do you? There's actually some deeper questions lurking behind that question. And one of those questions is actually, do you, beha- do you believe or trust the authority behind the Bible? So do you believe God and the human authors, if you like, if you see it that way, that have put the Bible together. If you're saying, do you don't believe the Bible, do you? You're also saying, well, you don't really believe the God who would have brought the Bible together and the people who wrote it and composed it over thousands of years, do you? So that's sort of actually the engineering. Do you believe the architect behind the chair? Do you believe the authority behind the Bible? Is sort of one implicit question that we need to grapple with, with and ask. The second sort of question that's going on, I think, is actually, well, can we trust the words and the chapters and the books themselves? How do we know we've got the right ones? How can we trust that they're reliable historical sources which believe still talk to us today? So there's the composition. In the same way we've got the wood and the metal, can we really trust, actually, the words that have been preserved for us? Have we got the right Bible? Might be another question. Why not all those other books that were floating around at the time, if there were any others? might be another one. And the third one, I think, is, well, how can we trust who it is that is giving us this Bible? So if we're being offered this Sunday by Sunday, how can we trust the people that are saying, read this. This is God's word. Listen to what it says, because here is life. And so really what we're also asking is, can we trust the church? 
which has offered us this as the source of knowledge and the source of truth. Does that make sense? So can we trust the authority behind the Bible? Can we trust the composition itself? And can we trust who it is that is saying, read this, it's worth reading. Thank you, Margaret. Bless you. <laughs> well done. Well sat. <laughs> Great stuff. So those for me, I think, are the three sort of key questions that underpin, can we trust the Bible? Is it really the word of God? I believe it is. I hope you believe it is as well. So, let's wrap up the first question fairly quickly and then get on to the other two. And I'm also interested if we have time for some of your questions as well about actually can we really trust the Bible. So the first one is actually can we trust the authority behind it? Can we believe that it is really God's word? Well, for us who are already believers, that may not be all of us here, but for those of us who call ourselves Christians, that's quite an easy one to tidy up, right? Because if you believe there is a God and you believe this is God's word, then you can have trust in the word of God. It's kind of a closed logical circle. (laughs) It's actually quite easy to believe that this is the word of God if you believe that there is a God that the word of God is telling you about. Does that make sense? So it's sort of that circular logic. I believe there is a God. I believe in the God that is revealed in the Bible and therefore I believe the Bible as the word of God. Which is fine for you and me if we're Christians but that doesn't really help other people who are perhaps a little bit more sceptical. So in terms of us believing the authority behind the Bible, great. We believe God is sovereign. We believe God is all-powerful. We believe God can speak to us today as he has done throughout history. And we believe that one of the principal ways he does that is through the Bible. Great. First question sorted. The second two questions, I think, are a little bit harder, don't you think? Because this, in my experience, is where people come with some of their critique and some of their concerns. Yeah, but to be honest, Ben... There's lots of inconsistencies in here. And to be honest, Ben, there's lots of nasty stuff in here. How can you believe that's God's word? And to be honest, wasn't it written hundreds and thousands of years after the events that it alleges to have happened? And all these other sort of questions in terms of its actual composition. And then you get onto the church, which doesn't have the best reputation in the world, let's be honest, at certain points. And then we've got to rely on this bunch of bishops who got together at some point in history and said, yes, let's not have those sort of bits of scripture over there because that's a little bit dodgy and we don't like what they're saying. Let's have these things which help us control the masses. And let's have these things which bring power to the church. And all these sorts of rhetorics that we have going on. That actually that this is something which is justifying kind of human power and human authority rather than God's authority. Those are the more trickier questions I think we need to grapple with. Actually, if we're going to believe that this is the word of God and we can trust it. Those are my thoughts, but over to you now actually. What sort of questions do you have about the Bible or what sort of versions of the questions I've already thrown out do you come across either yourself or other people anyone like to kick us off what sort of questions do you have about the authority of the Bible is it reliable have you got any It's outdated okay great so some people would say it's outdated so how can a Scripture, how can these letters which were written so many thousands of years ago have anything possible to say to today? It's completely irrelevant to what some people might say. Yeah? So we've got the outdated question. Great. Any other questions or challenges you come across? Um, it's the social kind of constructed way of oppressing and kind of treading on people. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, so it's something to control. Um, it's something to sort of support man-made authorities and structures, and it's a version of oppression, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one example might be that people will use this to actually say that women, you're second-class citizens, you need to keep your place, and us men over here, the learned men with the Bible in their hands, might say, you can't have this Bible. Yeah, exactly. So it has, And it has been used as a tool of oppression. Um, unfortunately, at times. What other sort of questions or queries? Yeah, John. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, mistranslated. Okay, so we've got issues of it being outdated. We've got issues of it's being used to control and oppress people. We've got issues of translation and it's been mistranslated. So how can we rely on it? Yeah. Anything else? What else? Questions? Full of miracles that no one can believe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, how can we possibly believe the Bible when it's full of all this miraculous stuff that goes on? Yeah, doesn't sound very plausible, does it? Okay, anything else? Subjective, tell me more. Yeah, absolutely. These are great questions. These are great questions, subjective. So we use it for our own means. Yeah, it's subjective. We can make it say whatever we want it to say, partly linked into your point as well. So if I want to oppress people, I'll find my justification in the Bible. Great. Wonderful. Or not, if we're trying to say this is the word of the Lord. Yeah. Anything else about that? How about things around um, inconsistencies? Have you come across that one? Well, hang on. It says in the Bible here, God is X, and then it says over here that God is Y. Or you look at the four gospel accounts... And you've got the accounts of supposedly the same story, but you've got different versions of it. So what do I do with that? Which version do I believe? But all four of them are being said to sort of somehow be authoritative. Do you see that as well? So different versions? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And this, yeah. Great. So much oral history. Sort of ties into a little bit that actually wasn't a lot of it written quite a long time after the events. So therefore, can we trust it in any shape or form? These are great questions. So what I suggest we do, actually, is try and grapple with some of these. And let's have a bit of a conversation, if you like. So if I say something that doesn't make sense, then feel free to say that doesn't make sense. Or if you want to throw back another question, let's do that as well. And I just suggest we use this time under God's guidance to actually help us wrestle with some of these questions together and hopefully land at a place where we can still have confidence in it being the word of the Lord and thanking God for it. Let's just pray, yeah? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you promised that when two or three are gathered that you were here. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit you will guide our minds, guide our conversation, and guide our discussion, Lord. Thank you for giving us the Bible, Lord. Help us to grapple with it. Help us to understand how to use it wisely so that you may be glorified and we may be able to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, right. So where do we jump in with all these questions? We've got different versions, oral history, outdated. Okay, let's tackle the oral history one first off because that's kind of actually tied to some of the other things that we talked about. So there is this idea that some people critique the Bible because they're like, well, okay, it was written over hundreds, sort of thousands of years from the Old Testament to the New Testament in largely an oral sort of society. So people would talk about things and they would share their stories. But actually, by the time we get what we have as the Bible, this is a long time after the events took place. 
If you look at the New Testament letters, for example, or the Gospels, then many of them are believed to have been written between about 60 AD and about 100 AD, depending on which scholars you believe. Now, if they're referring to, largely referring to events which were sort of between 0 AD and 33 AD and shortly after, then that's, isn't that a bit of a problem? Because you've got at least 30 years before something's been written down. And I don't know what your memory's like. <laughs> Mine doesn't remember things from 30 years ago. And yes, I am old enough to remember things 30 years ago. Mine doesn't remember, I don't remember an awful lot. So isn't that a huge problem? It doesn't that sort of seal and sort out this issue show? We can't believe it, because 30 years have passed before the first things were written. So actually, the earliest bits of the New Testament were probably some of Paul's letters, maybe about 50, 60 AD. That's still quite a long time after the sort of gospel events that he often refers to in his letters. Any ideas how we might possibly tackle that particular challenge around trustworthiness? How on earth do we account for the gap? Yeah. Exactly. So that cooperation, I think, is, is one angle to it. I think there's another angle we can take with this as well, in as much as when these sort of letters and when the Gospels were first been, being written, by and large, you still have people who were alive at the time when these events took place, which is another sort of source of support. And often you'll find in the Gospels and in the letters referring to eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts. And they stress that quite a lot, that actually, you know, who we have seen, what we have heard, those of us who have not yet fallen asleep, they're making explicit reference to the fact we're writing at a time where quite easily someone who was there could have stood up and said, hang on a minute, didn't, ha- didn't happen like that. We took, Jesus never said that. Jesus said this. So it's being written, although it might be a few years after the events, it's being written within a time frame where actually there are still people who lived and walked with the disciples, with Jesus himself. So that's actually one, I guess, source of support and thing that we can also mention. I think another thing we can also say is actually, partly to your point, so your question and your sort of answered the question, it's an oral society. And whilst today we live in a very sort of literate society where everything is written down and preserved, and if it isn't written down, then we don't really need to have to remember it because my phone will tell me where I need to be and what I need to do and who I need to talk to. Very different culture we're talking about here. And actually, in the Jewish culture at the time, especially those who were learned in the scriptures, they would learn it by heart. So when you talk about being a rabbi or learning from a rabbi, what you're trying to do is actually memorize the scriptures word for word. Many Jewish people today still take that approach of learning the scriptures by heart. So we're in a culture as well which is actually soaked in this idea of actually... I remember things, it's an oral culture. We tell the stories, we will tell the stories, and we hold on to them because this is our knowledge, this is our education. Very, very different culture now, which is, unless I'm reminded of it, I don't need to remember it. Does that make sense? So that also, I think, gives us a bit of greater confidence that within this culture, this is exactly how they would pass things on. And we're still only within, say, 30, 40 years of that. I think there's another thing we can also talk about in as much as why the New Testament in particular was written at the time it was, was just at that point where that first generation of eyewitnesses were beginning to die. Which makes perfect sense, which is why now you have to write it down. Because you could argue, why not write it down at the time? We're in an oral culture. We've got eyewitnesses. We'll just talk to them about it. 
We don't necessarily have the same impetus to write it down. But now, as you can see, the first generation are beginning to die. We need to preserve this for later generations to come. Which is why you tend to get between 6 and about 100 AD that things are being written. So do we not think that it would have, they would have thought what? Well, yeah. Happened, yeah. You know, think. Like yeah. Let, let's quickly write, make a note of this thing that I've just that might be quite important to you know that healing of the five thousand. We might want to tell someone about that at some point. Yeah. Why not write it down? So I, I guess there's yes. I think you're right. There's an interesting question. There's two sort of things. Partly I'd go back to this oral culture that actually writing it down was a secondary sort of thing. Actually, it's telling the stories. They're not. People who are originally in that culture aren't necessarily thinking writing is the way to preserve things. Actually, the culture is, I tell you, you remember, we recount, and that's the way we pass it on to people. But actually, of course, when there's no one left to keep on telling <laughs> that that's the point, I think, where you probably need to write it down um, as well. The other sort of angle to that, I would say, is whilst we have in, in the Bible here, if you like, the received sort of final versions... That's not to say, of course, that actually, partly to sort of Richard's point, that there weren't bits of Gospels and bits of letters, if you like, which were already circulating, which then got received as a complete sort of text, if that makes sense. So there's no reason to believe that there weren't sort of versions of that sort of floating around. Okay, so we've sort of talked about the versions, we've talked about the oral history. Where else should we go? Where else should we go? Okay, here's another interesting point. Um... I've shared before, um, I think, in in sermons that I'm a bit of a historian, so I do love my history. I think just to emphasise this a little bit more, you'll see there's a scrap of paper that I've put up on this screen, which is sort of hidden. But anyway, can we trust the Bible? This bit of papyrus is the John Ryland papyrus, which, if you wanted to, you could go and see for yourself in Manchester University, which is where it is, in the John Ryland Library. Now, this bit of papyrus, actually, for me, again, is one bit of evidence which supports how much we can trust this being the word of God. Now, the reason we can is actually there are over 5,000 bits of papyri, New Testament manuscripts in existence that we know of today. And there may be more to discover. Over 5,000 bits of papyri, which are from very near to the original composition. This one particularly has been dated to 125, which in historical terms is exceedingly early. Huge, amazingly early, 125. Now, the Gospel of John, which this is a snippet from, believed to be written between sort of 1890 AD and 100 AD. So you're talking about a bit of actual gospel dated to within about 30 years of when we believe the actual gospel itself was first written. Now again, those of you who are a little bit more skeptical might be, aha, but this is still an awfully long time, isn't it? After these original things were written down, let alone when they originally happened. Well, let me give you some comparators, actually, to actually give you a little bit of confidence about this. At school, did you have to read the writings of Homer or Aristotle? Did any any of you have to do that? Can you remember that? Did you ever have to read any Homer or Aristotle or Socrates or anything like that from the good and the great? Yeah, some, okay. When you were reading that, Claire, did you believe it was true? It was the the original version and that we could rely on what Socrates was writing and we could rely on Homer and Aristotle? You just sort of take it as read that what I'm reading is this must be the original version? Yeah, that's generally how it's presented to us. Well, for those writings, actually, the closest copy we have to when it was supposedly originally written 
is between 500 years and 1,000 years after first composition. Now, that's quite interesting, isn't it? If we're talking about trust, and is this a reliable historical document? Because you might say, well, hang on, but this is still 30 years after the first version, if you like, was written in the Gospel of John. Well, if you compare that to every other sort of ancient document, that's nothing in terms of historical reliability. It's incredible compared to 500,000 years after Homer, Aristotle. All these things we can take easily as read because it has less consequence if it's true or not. Bible, really, if this to be true, that has consequence. That might mean I might have to change my life. I might have to believe in God. I might have to believe in Jesus. So it's kind of easier to sort of think, well, yes, 30 years after, therefore, it can't be true. In historical terms, that's actually really trustworthy. Really trustworthy. And over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts is incredible. Versions of the writings of Homer or Aristotle you have in the tens and the hundreds in terms of bits of fragment like this. New Testament, over 5,000 fragments. Now, even if you don't love history, if you're a believer, that's something to get excited about, isn't it? In terms of what has been passed on to us, actually we can have confidence, certainly compared to a lot of other manuscripts that we just take as read as well. What other things? Okay, how about this um, oppression and this controlling thing? Because that sort of came up as well, didn't it? You know, isn't this just a tool to oppress people, therefore I can't trust it? Or have you heard, and this is sort of the Da Vinci Code approach to the Bible as well. So haven't you heard of the Council of Nicaea 325, that a bunch of really angry men got together and said, stop all these crazy ideas about Jesus. We just want our version of Jesus to be the one you believe. Have you heard about that? The Council of Nicaea, quite an important church council back in 325. And some people say, well, that's the first time the Bible actually came into existence. Because it was at that council was right, okay, we'll decide these are the books that we're going to put together and say, this is God's word. And yeah, it's true. There were other things floating about at that time as well. There were other gospels, if you like, other letters that some people thought, hmm, maybe we'll have some ideas from here, maybe we'll have some ideas from there. Have you come across that line of thinking? And that therefore this bunch of, sorry? Sorry, I can't quite... Oh, yes, oh, yes, the Nag Hammadi Gospels, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So there are different sort of compositions that you get about different Gospels and different books in the Bible, and it's also true to say that different parts of the worldwide church actually accept slightly different books within their Bibles. You may know of the Apocrypha, for example. So some people say, well, yes, this is also sort of authorised books as well. The Orthodox Church has some slightly different ways of looking at some of these books as opposed to the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church. So it's not as if we can escape some of these sort of challenges of history. But actually, I think when we look at what these great councils tried to do, rather than seeing it as, actually, this council gets together and they sort of say, right, we better work out which bits are actually the Bible and which bits aren't, because otherwise people are going to have all these crazy ideas. The tests that the actual council tried to put these scriptures through was actually pretty harsh and pretty severe. It was difficult to get a book into what became the Bible. It had to have what they called apostolic authority. It had to be recognised widely. It had to be in constant use by the different sort of gatherings that were called the church at the time. And they had to agree that actually, yes, we believe this has authority. And what the council were actually trying to do, and other councils since then, 
is actually to affirm what they believed the church had already received. It's a subtle difference, but it's an important one, I think. Rather than saying, let's sit around and think, well, what shall we have in our Bible? Which is sometimes how it's presented, sort of, aka, sort of, the Da Vinci Code. Let's, let's work out what we should have. Let's work out the stuff that helps us oppress other people. Let's get of that, rid of that awkward stuff that talks about sort of women that we don't like, or that other kind of ideas. But actually what they're trying to do when you look at the original text is what can we affirm that actually the global church already recognises as Holy Scripture as well. What about inconsistencies? Do you think there are any in the Bible? It says this here and it says that somewhere else. Yeah? Any, uh, any inconsistencies you want to raise whilst we're at it? Um, the difference between, because God's supposed to be constant and the same, and never changing, always loving. Yeah. Why is he quite murderous in the uh-huh. Old Testament and so loving and kind of through Jesus in the New Testament? Yeah. It is a big question. Um, and it's an important one to grapple with, because you're right, so some of the Old Testament stuff, let's be honest, there's quite a lot of murder, rape, torture, nasty stuff can be going on um, in sort of Israel's history, quite bad stuff. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus says, well, hey, you know, let's, we've got to love our neighbour, we've got to be really good to each other. There is also a bit of bad behaviour in the New Testament as well, but it's probably not on quite the, on quite the quote, biblical scale you get in the Old Testament as well. So what do we do with that? Any ideas before I sort of offer my suggestions? How do we, is it the same God? Is, did a different God turn up in Jesus? What might we think? How do we handle some of the tricky... Yeah, John. It's a great point, thank you. So that point around actually, at a particular point in time, history may judge the Bible to be inaccurate, but actually that's only at a particular point in time. And historians are just like scientists and everybody, other sort of professional body. You say what you know at the time based on the evidence you have, but it's all provisional until another bit of evidence comes to light as well. And there's been many cases of that. I just want to come back to this question, though, also around actually this apparent inconsistency about God, because it's a big one, isn't it? How can you trust the Bible when God keeps on changing who he is? Because, you know, if he's going to be violent here and he's going to be peaceful here, how do we reconcile that? Any other sort of ideas? Joy? Coming into what John was saying about um, what you, like, as history goes on, when yeah. we're into the Old Testament, how we then come to Jesus. Yep. Crucifixion and resurrection. Yep. Because the carrot, yeah, okay, so if you just took the carrots from God and the events that happened, yep. then you could think that it was a different God. But if you take that God is just and God is good, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, definitely, definitely affirm that. So I think as Christians, we need to read all of the Bible in light of Christ. 
definitely, because we believe Jesus is the word of God, <laughs> made flesh, and that this, these are the written words of God, if you like. So that's important. We still have this challenge, though, don't we, of what about all this murdering and all the rest of the bad stuff going on? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you get with that challenge, and I'm sure you're thinking this too, did God make a mistake? Whoops. <laughs> this creation thing, this humanity thing, let's just sort of, it's not going so well, is it? And which sort of there bears into mind, well, how, how far can God be sovereign and see the future and all the rest of it as well? And but I think this thing about violence um, and about all the awful stuff is, what I'd want to say is this, which I believe to be the word of God. We often refer to it as Holy Scripture, which I believe it is, if it's God's words. But it's also God's words kind of through the human race and through humanity. And there is a lot of humanity in the Bible as well as holiness. Does that make sense? So it's also the story of us grappling with what a holy God looks like and how we should respond. So whilst we do get a lot of violence and a lot of disappointment, in some respects that's reflecting our humanity first irrespective of what we may think it then says about God, possibly. But I think we need to hold those two intention, that the Bible is there to show us as much our own humanity as it is God's holiness, and we bring the two together. And to sort of bring in your point, Joy, about reading it in the light of Christ, if Jesus is the Word made flesh, and if we believe Jesus to be fully God and fully man, that actually, therefore, in Jesus we see humanity as it was meant to be, and therefore, potentially, up until Christ comes... You have living under the law, sort of not quite getting it right. (laughs) Now, that doesn't excuse all the murder and the violence, but actually, there's a huge honesty, I think, in the Bible as well. right so we talk about the old testament and the new testament so that there was a way if you like of humanity interacting with god and god interacting with humanity that for a particular time and a particular culture which is in many respects very different to ours and then in the new testament part of this is actually well, well yeah actually now is a time of grace if you like god has given us the time of law look what happened now we get the time of grace 
were actually, and, but also Jesus does talk a lot about law and saying I've come to fulfill the law, which again leads me back to if all these sort of difficult interpretations or difficult interactions that God has with us, and yet we see Jesus perfectly embodying it, then I think there is something to be said about how people try to grapple and understand what God was trying to say, perhaps in a way which wasn't what he might have hoped. So I think there's a bit of that as well in recognising that, yes, when Jesus comes, this is the fullness of, of law as well. I appreciate that. I've probably gone way, way, way over time. Just got a couple more thoughts, if I may, um, just, just to finish off with it. Did anyone else have sort of a key burning question that I haven't answered or tried to answer? I'm not suggesting I'm an expert by any stretch. Any sort of key questions or thoughts around some of this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, okay, go, go for it. Good question. Uh, I guess the initial part of the initial response is this collection of books that, that is the Bible itself is written over hundreds of years itself and in cultures that have changed a huge amount themselves. And partly to what you said earlier on about the consistency within it is quite staggering itself. All these different human authors, God-inspired human authors, as, as the church believes it, all of these human authors inspired by God writing pretty consistent messages about God, actually, is, is quite amazing across different cultures as well, I, I, think is, I think is part of the answer. I think the other sort of part of the answer as well is there are many bits, perhaps in modern society, or particular ways of living life now, which we may not find specific references to in the Bible. But you see, the Bible contains all sorts of literature. You have law, you have poetry, you have history, you have song, you have lament, you have proverbs. So it's not one literary genre, right? So, yes, I believe this is the book you can live your life by, but it's not a book in the same way that a scientific textbook might say, here are all the scientific answers to life. You have bits of law and history, of course you do, but you've also got poetry, which talks about things in very symbolic ways. And so I think we also need to be a little bit mindful, actually, when we read this and try and engage with society, that A, actually, are we reading it in the literary genre it's written anyway? And are we trying to apply a bit of poetry, for example, perhaps in a very difficult literist sense, which somehow doesn't, doesn't, doesn't quite work as well, I would say. Yeah, Joy. So to add to that, yeah. um, it's really important to try and understand the context to which it yep. was written. Yeah. Um, and the examples that are used, so like phrases like go the extra mile or turn the other cheek, yep. they weren't just, like we can take that literally, like you're saying, yep. but actually that would be wrong because that yep. meant Definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think so we need to be mindful of the context when we're reading it, and all of us can proof text. We can make the Bible say whatever we want to say if we believe that we have the right to say whatever we want to say, rather than actually trying to work out what God's word is. And that actually, just briefly, and I know I've gone way over, but it's, it's my last preach, so sorry. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. You can forgive me when I'm gone. Um, actually, that, you know, rather than us saying, this is what I want the Bible to say, actually trying to receive it 
understanding the original context really key, but then also thinking, well, how does this apply? And the church has done this all along. You go back to the church fathers, they, they read it and they say, what's the literal meaning at the time? Then what's also the allegorical meaning? What's the metaphor? What's the bigger truth that this literal example is trying to tell me? And I think we can do the same today if we do it wisely. And I think that actually, for me, that opens up the Bible in all sorts of ways. What is literally being said at the, at the time for particular people, what also could it say to me today? And just a final point before, before we land, before one sort of walks me off the stage. <laughs> far too long, man, far too There's a lot to say. There's a lot of Bible, right? It's quite difficult to get through it all. I guess just a final point. That thing about the historical particularity of the Bible, you know, so you've got Paul writing letters to the church in Philippi. You think, well, does that relate to me? Because I'm not in Philippi. Actually, those little bits of historical particularity, for me, makes it much more reliable and valid than if it was somehow this big sort of grandiose, you know, one day God sat down and said to me everything I ever needed to know to tell all humanity. If it was this big sort of massive, nice, neat, conceptual thing, I would be a bit more sceptical about that then it's because real people, inspired by God, writing real letters to other real people, and including seemingly random things about, you know, give your blessings to all these people that no one now knows who they were. That actually gives me confidence that this is an actual letter that someone actually wrote, which has been received by the church as Holy Scripture. And actually, some of these inconsistencies, you watch, says this, this order of events in this gospel and this order of events in another gospel, that gives me confidence actually, that people are writing things and recording them and trying to preserve them, rather than saying, okay, guys, let's all get together and make sure we tie up our story. Actually, these small inconsistencies, and they are pretty small, actually gives me confidence that people are trying to faithfully hand on to us what they actually believe to be true and what God has inspired them to actually offer. And even these inconsistencies, which we could quibble to the cows come home about, the big thing in the Gospels about Jesus' birth, life, death and resurrection, they're all there. <laughs> you can't quibble with that. You may quibble with, well, exactly, did Jesus start clearing the temple at the start of his three-year ministry, or what, did he clear the temple at the end of his three-year ministry? Actually, does that make a huge difference to our faith, if we're quibbling about when that happened? The key thing is it's recorded and handed over to us. And what does it mean to us today, and what did it mean in the original context? Right, I could really go on for another three hours. But anyway, <laughs> the final thing I will say, the promise, the final thing I will say, I believe this is the word of the Lord, and I believe we need to give thanks to God for it. The Christian affirmation of truth really is that truth is a person, and that truth is Jesus Christ. And that the Christian way of reading this is that this is what points to Jesus, and we can believe that truth is a person who walked with us, who dined with us, who died for us, and lives for us. And that these words, God-breathed words, written through human authors through hundreds of years, points us to that truth, which is a person. This is the word of the Lord.